And so the world rushes from place to place trying to find pleasure. And in fact, there is a measured amount of pleasure in sin. It's a twisted pleasure. It's not a godly pleasure. And yet the reason that the world pursues it is that it's the only place they can actually find pleasure. Pleasure for unbelievers is found in sin. And they are desperately running from place to place trying to get more pleasure out of the sins that they desperately crave. Now the kingdom of God, on the other hand, is all about pleasure, but about a true pleasure, about a true joy. Hello and welcome again to Grace Maryville Weekly, which is a podcast ministry of Grace Community Church located in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. The sermon you are about to hear is a part of a sermon series presented by Pastor Chris Reiser from the book of Matthew. Pastor Chris has sought to demonstrate that Jesus is the King, which is the overall theme of the book of Matthew. It is our goal to provide messages on Monday and Friday, weekly from the pulpit at Grace Community Church, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and to call everyone to repent and believe. Let's listen now as Pastor Chris works exegetically through the text. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And if you'll stand, we're going to again read what are called the Beatitudes, but are, are really the principles of receiving blessing in the kingdom of God. Something that I hope we all pray for and pursue above all other things. It's the only kingdom that really matters. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Please be seated. Now, if you've ever been on one of our youth camps or, or heard about them, you might notice that there tends to be a, a similar theme that runs through most of them, and that is that we end up somewhere sometime during the week at a theme park, something like a Six Flags or other things. And there's no real complex reason for that. It's because I really like theme parks. And generally, I take the youth on the things that I really like to do, and I just ask them to join me. Usually, they match up, and the youth like to do them as well, but not always. Nonetheless, if I'm happy, no, that's not the only reason that we do those things. And yet, for most of my life, that's been a great joy. And now when I go to a theme park, for example, this, this last, uh, in our last summer camp, we were at Six Flags, and I had my family with me, and we kind of waited for everyone else to go in. We kind of meandered in and just hit the rides that, you know, we could do with the kids. And, and, you know, we worked through to some of the bigger rides and enjoyed that, but there was not a, not a, a real sense of urgency, or at least not like it used to be. You see, when I was in high school and college, I grew up in Southern California, and there are all kinds of theme parks there, the best ones, of course. No, no, no offense to the ones we have here. 
But nonetheless, we would, we would prepare for a day where the youth group would go, and this would literally be an all-week thought. All right, how are we going to fully utilize this theme park? And so we always were there early, never, never late, like the doors would already be open. So we're waiting at the gate, and we have a plan. We've already looked at the map. Couldn't pull it up online in those days, but usually there was maps you could go find at the, at, at your, at the Civic Center or whatever. So you'd find it, and we had it all mapped out. And the moment's the gate, the moment the gate's open, we're off like a shot. Of course, you go to the back of the theme park because if you beat everybody there, there's nobody there. And then you work your way back towards the front because you're going against the, the stream of those who are working their way to the back. And you had all the big rides. All the best rides are back there. And so, of course, if anything got in our way, we, we were in anguish. I mean, maybe a ride was closed, or the ride was too long, or there are more people than we expected. It's just like an agony waiting to get to the next ride. And so we would ru- literally run from ride to ride. Now, the idea of stopping for lunch, I mean, we do that as a youth group now. We like go out and have lunch. Well, what is that? There is too much fun to be had. Food is not necessary. Not then. It's, it's necessary later. But it's not, there's, too much, there's too much pleasure to be had. And so we would race from thing to thing, drop into bed at the end of the day, absolutely exhausted from our pleasure-seeking. That's a wrong thing to run around Six Flags looking for pleasure? Generally not. Unfortunately, however, it provides us with a pretty good picture of how the world spends, those who don't know Christ, how they spend their entire lives. From the moment they are born to the time that they die, they are rushing around trying to find pleasure. Well, if you're an unbeliever, the only thing you can actually find pleasure in is sin. And so everything they do, whether it is viewed by the world itself as sinful, sometimes it's activity that seems to be helpful, but because it is done selfishly, not for the glory of Christ, it is actually sin. And so the world rushes from place to place trying to find pleasure. And in fact, there is a measured amount of pleasure in sin. It's a twisted pleasure. It's not a godly pleasure. And yet the reason that the world pursues it is that it's the only place they can actually find pleasure. Pleasure for unbelievers is found in sin. And they are desperately running from place to place trying to get more pleasure out of the sins that they desperately crave. Now the kingdom of God, on the other hand, is all about pleasure, but about a true pleasure, about a true joy. Why does else would he say, blessed be? The primary characteristic of those in the kingdom are that they are full of the pleasures of God that they are satisfied in him, that they rejoice in him, that they have their peace and their full satisfaction in him. Did you know that? That's what the kingdom's all about. That's why he said, blessed be, blessed be, blessed be. It isn't barely maintaining you know, their, their lives be. It isn't miserable are. It isn't just doing their duty are. Blessed are. And then it goes on to list all the ways that they become or, or enter into that blessed state. But it's about true pleasure and true joy. And it is only found by those who recognize the evil of sin and its twisted pleasure, and they mourn and weep over it, rather than embracing that sinful pleasure and instead turn out of a mourning and weeping over sin and and its evilness to pursue the true joys that God has to offer, righteousness, holiness within his kingdom, those things that honor and please him. So what we'll see this morning is that another fundamental attitude of kingdom citizens is that they do not find joy in sin. Instead, they mourn and weep over it. A fundamental attitude of kingdom citizens is that they do not find joy in sin, in sin. Instead, they mourn and they weep over it. And this is our second blessed, our second beatitude. The first was blessed are the poor in spirit. And I believe these are working in progression. In fact, I would say that this second beatitude really flows out of the first And remember, to be poor in spirit is sometimes related to being physically poor. 
that those who have nothing, oftentimes God uses that in their lives to enable them to see their need, but certainly not always, and not poor, being poor in and of itself is not some kind of blessing. When it is used by the Lord to turn to him, then the blessing becomes the turning to him, and the removal of things that helped you see that is, in fact, a blessing. But it, it's sometimes related to being physically poor, but it is always related, this poor in spirit, last week's beatitude, is it is always followed by, or, or it is a part of it, is always a spiritual bankruptcy, a spiritual poverty, recognizing that we have nothing to offer to God. Along with that comes a sense of unworthiness. I do not stand before him as one who deserves his blessing. I, I stand before him as one who is totally unworthy, as a tax collector, who stood at a distance and says, Lord, I'm not even, uh, have mercy on me, a sinner. Uh, he didn't even consider himself worthy to lift up his eyes. As opposed to the Pharisee who stands and essentially says, Lord, because of what I've done, God, because of what I've done, I deserve all the blessings you could give. In fact, more. I'm deserving of what you have given. And too often, that is how we act. The poor in spirit understand their bankruptcy. They understand their unworthiness. They understand their dependence. That at all times, they're utterly dependent upon the very one who created them, certainly for their life and their breath and their sustenance, but also for any spiritually good thing. The poor in spirit know that they are dead in sin or were dead in sin and were unable on their own to accomplish anything. And they know that every moment of their lives and for all of eternity, they they remain in complete dependence upon the power of God, the blessing of God, the grace of God. And then we also said that to be poor in spirit means that we hate our own selfishness because arrogance of heart, a selfishness which desires things for our own benefit, our own gain, is the opposite of being poor in spirit. Rich in spirit is arrogance. Poor in spirit is selflessness. And we ended last week with the fact that those who are poor in spirit are always those who submit to the Word of God. They recognize that from the Word of God comes their sustenance. In the Word of God is found their worthiness, the way that they can take hold of the righteousness of Christ. Their bankruptcy, their 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 lack of any kind of capital in order to enter into the presence of God is found in the truths of the Word of God, pursued through it. And so they humble themselves under God's mighty hand to the truth of His Word. And as such, then, they enter into the kingdom poor in spirit, but they remain ever increasingly poor in spirit. They only see more their own bankruptcy apart from Christ. They only see more of their necessity to remain dependent upon God and what he's provided. And so this kingdom attitude of poorness in spirit just continues to grow. But it is related to the second one, the one we will study this morning, in verse 4, where it says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, for a true poorness of spirit, that is, a true humility and a true recognition of our need, should, should then flow out in a hatred of sin. That's what we will see when there is true bankruptcy of spirit. There will be a mourning over anything which violates the character and nature of God. So let's look at the definition of mourning. What does it really mean? What does it mean when the scriptures say, blessed are those who mourn? Really, happy are the sad. And this is completely opposite, of course, from our world's mindset. You just have to be happy all the time. Any sadness is some kind of aberration. It's something apart from anything we should ever experience. That's not what the word says or the word of God. What could be more contradictory, it seems, than this particular beatitude, it's equally as contradictory as the first one. Blessed are the humble, for they shall be citizens of the kingdom. Well, blessed are those who mourn, for they are the ones who will receive comfort and therefore the blessedness of the kingdom. Now, as with our other or our first beatitude, this is sometimes related to the difficulties of life, just as being poor in spirit is sometimes related to actually being poor in circumstance. So it is that mourning 
is sometimes related to actual physical mourning when circumstances are difficult. It is true that God cares for the needy. He is the one who bears them up. He is the one who is kind to them and recognizes their condition. However, he care, his care for them in physical difficulty is directly related to the nature of their spiritual condition. You see, even the poor and the needy are not ultimately helped by God in any kind of eternal way unless they have a different kind of mourning. Even those who are mourning over their difficult circumstances will only find grace from the hand of God ultimately when they mourn in a much deeper way. And that's what is being mentioned. That's what Jesus is referencing in this particular beatitude. Not simply the afflictions of daily life, of which there are many, but instead the affliction of heart, which enables the blessing of God in the midst of, of the ongoing difficulties that we will continue to face. Because it is manifestly not true that those who have a hard and difficult life will naturally be rewarded in the end. It is not true. Now, see, that's kind of a yin-yang concept. You've got evil here and good here, and those who have gone through bad things in this life will receive better things in the life to come. That is absolutely untrue. Just simply having gone through bad things. We, somehow we, we, we still buy into that. If things are happening badly here, then eventually things will, people say, it'll all work out. It's happening badly for you now, but things will work out in the end because God, God's fair. He knows. Well, God is always fair. But the axiom, life is hard and then you die, is a much better description of what actually happens to those who are afflicted and needy. God does not simply look at their affliction and say, well, because you went through hard things in this life, I will grant you blessing in the life to come. Because that external neediness and affliction is not the same as an internal mourning over sin, which turns you to God so that you might receive his grace. Otherwise you will receive nothing but his judgment. And so for those who are afflicted and needy in this life, who have an external mourning over the difficulties of it, and yet never turn to God ultimately in mourning over sin, what they find is that this life was in all of its difficulties and all of its afflictions. This was the best they will ever experience. And when they die, the afflictions of life will seem as nothing to the afflictions of eternal hell. So really, there is no way Jesus can simply be referencing, well, if things are hard for you now, in the kingdom they'll be okay. There's only one way things are okay in the kingdom. Through a poorness of spirit, as we discussed last week, which produces what we will see this week is a mourning and an anguish over sin, because that's the second or that's the real part of this definition. It is sometimes related to the general difficulties of life in that we can be directed through physical difficulty to see our need. God can and does use those things. But ultimately, this is related to an anguish of spirit. That's number two. An anguish of spirit, a mourning of heart that recognizes the violation of the character and nature of God that our sin is and grieves over it. So let me give you kind of an overall definition that we're going to work our way through for the rest of the message this morning. I'm going to start with what I'm intending to demonstrate. So a theological definition of this kind of mourning would be this. It's an internal anguish and sadness over sin, along with a willful determination to deal properly with sin that is only experienced by those who believe what the scripture says about the evilness of sin. I'll say it again. It's an internal anguish and sadness over sin along with a willful determination to deal properly with sin that is only experienced by those who believe what the Scripture says about the evilness of sin. John MacArthur says this, The faithful child of God is constantly broken over his sinfulness. 
And the longer he lives and the more mature he becomes in the Lord, the harder it is for him to be frivolous. That is, going through life with kind of this frivolous happiness that the world seems to be pursuing with reckless abandon. Let's all be happy when, when sin is marring our lives, marring this world, pressing in for happiness, when it cannot be found apart from the true dealing with sin. The true believer, MacArthur goes on to say, sees more of God's love and mercy but he also sees more of his own and the world's sinfulness. To grow in grace is to grow in our awareness of sin and our grief over it. And so I might ask even at the outset of this message, are you receiving the blessedness that comes from a mourning over sin or do you treat sin lightly? Well, let's step through and see what it looks like to truly mourn and grieve over our sin. What are the characteristics then of true mourners? Not those who simply have a difficult life and who grieve over that, the afflicted, but those who are afflicted of heart, who recognize the evilness of sin, the true affliction that that is. They hate it, they grieve over it, and therefore they change. Really, this is a response to spiritual bankruptcy. If you recognize that you have nothing to offer, that the, the, the best of your so-called goodness is nothing but filthy rags in the eye of God, eyes of God, what are you going to do with that? Well, there's a variety of responses that you could make. You could be like the Pharisees who simply deny it. Say, so we're not spiritually bankrupt. Although in their hearts, as it were, all men know that they are out of relationship with God. Yet it can be men seek to deny that. And what they do is they cling to their self-righteousness with reckless abandon. I will be good enough. They understand, as, they, as even they have the, enough insight into their own hearts to realize they are not truly good. So what they do is they cling ever more tightly to their external righteousness. That is one response to being poor in spirit. And that might be what some of you did from last week's message. That hurts. Being poor, I don't think I want to go there, so I'm going to, I'm going to press in for my self-righteousness. I'm going to try more good acts and see if that'll do it. That's one response, to pretend to be spiritual millionaires when we are spiritual paupers. Or perhaps a response to our being poor in spirit might be like the monastics and ascetics who admit their condition and try to change it in our own power by making our lives miserable ourselves. Well, I will make life hard. I will set aside good things. I will not partake of those. I'll move out into the desert or wherever it might be. There's a, a, a movement back in that direction these days. We'll step out of this world. We'll try to find our purity, our holiness. We'll try to try to recognize and live out our, our poorness of spirit by just renouncing the world. Well, that ultimately accomplishes nothing because you take your own sinful heart with you. And it doesn't matter where you go, what wilderness you go into, or what monastery you might try to go. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, murder, said Jesus. Your heart is evil, so you can't fix it that way. Now, some... They go a totally different direction. They recognize they are poor in spirit. That is, they, they have nothing to offer. They are told that. And they admit their condition and then despair over it to such a degree that they try to drown it in drink. They escape it by drugs or activity, or they give up completely and commit suicide, as Judas did. These people assume that because they couldn't find a solution, or because they didn't like any of the solutions offered, that there must not be a solution. So you name it. What's your response to recognizing that you are poor in spirit, that you have nothing to offer? Well, the way, the true response that we ought to make is like the prodigal son. We admit our condition. We mourn over it, and we turn to our heavenly Father to remedy our poverty. Now, the characteristics of, of true mourners, let's uh, discuss a few things that this mourning isn't. Because there's a lot of times, there's a lot of things we mourn over, that we grieve over, that are not what Jesus is talking about here. And in fact, there are a lot of ways we mourn improperly over our sin. That's what he is ultimately referencing. But there's a lot of ways we mourn improperly over it. Some, 
is we're actually mourning when we're when when we are not don't get what we want. Our grief really comes from mourning over our own lustful desires. I'm not talking about the kind of mourning that comes when you wanted something so badly that you sinned to get it or are sinning to have it, and really your grief is a representation of your sin. Right? A little bit like Amnon, who in a, in a physical way had this kind of grief. He, he mourned over unfulfilled sexual lust for a particular woman. In 2 Samuel 13.2, says Amnon was so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. For she was a virgin, and it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. I can't have her. Again, we may not be lusting over an adulterous relationship, but perhaps you have set up even a good thing in your own heart. I want to have the perfect marriage. I want to have my family be just all around me and all what I want, my children doing what is, what is good and right. And when that doesn't happen, you grieve. But what happens is you end up grieving inappropriately because you set those things up as an idol. And your grief is not over the fact that God is displeased by sin, but that you're not getting what you want. That's not the kind of mourning we're talking about here. There's no blessedness in that mourning whatsoever. It is selfish, even when it's directed towards an object that would naturally or normally be good. So not mourning over lustful desires, idols, essentially, even when they are seemingly good things, but also not mourning to a sinful extreme. You see, there are times we can recognize our sin, we can become fixated upon it, and our grief takes over in a sinful and unhealthy way. We wallow in our sin. That's not grieving. That's not mourning. See, people call it beating themselves up. They'll tell me, I'm, I'm, I just keep beating myself up over my sin. You know what that really is? That is sinfully refusing to accept the forgiveness of God. And it flows from a lack of true sorrow over sin. And it really is just simply a sorrow over receiving the, the, the difficult circumstances that sin brings. People don't like that. And so they get angry and grieve over the consequences of sin and they start to wallow in their own sin and they never get out of it and it consumes them. We're not talking about that kind of mourning. That's wrong. It's arrogance, essentially, to refuse to take hold of what God has given. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't circumstances which can seem so weighty and so heavy that we wonder and and we wrestle and struggle to respond rightly and so we wonder if we can and they can seem, again, very weighty. But the bottom line is this. If we allow them to overcome us, we are simply refusing to take hold of the greatness of the power of God who deliver us, delivers us from every sin. This is a lot like David, who mourned over Absalom. You remember the story? Absalom, his own son, tries to overthrow him. And really, in, in that way, not just overthrowing David, but really trying to, to thwart the plan of God. David was God's anointed king. So Absalom says, I'm, I'm going to undo that plan so David flees, he has to flee from Jerusalem, and then there's a battle with Absalom and his forces, and, and, and David and his, really Joab being the one who leads those forces, and Joab comes across Absalom and kills him against the direct command of David. He says, do not kill my son. May it go well with my son Absalom. And then he comes back and he tells him, a messenger comes and tells David that Absalom has been killed, and David goes into weeping and mourning. And all, everyone in the city, those who should be rejoicing in the victory over, over the one who was trying to depose David and ultimately to undo or, or overthrow the plan of God, they are hearing his agonizing weeping over the fact that this traitor has died, even though it's his own son. What's the issue there? I think clearly what's going on in David's heart is his own anguish over his own sin. That was what caused Absalom's downfall. Ultimately, God said, the sword will never depart from your house. And David is agonizing over his own sinfulness. There seems to be a, a, just a, a, a constant, he's, he's dwelling on this. He allows it to overcome him so that he does not love what is right. And Joab comes to him and says, I tell you this day, the evil that you have done in, in mourning over Absalom and not rejoicing in that he, that he died is going to be worse than anything that has ever come upon you. 
You love those who hate you, and therefore you are hating those who love you. And if you don't fix this, you're done. By the words, Grace David does. He recognizes his foolishness to mourn essentially over his own sin. I caused this. Look what has happened. My son is now dead. All of those things. He's overwhelmed inappropriately. He's taking what could, should we mourn over death? Certainly. The death of a son or a child? Absolutely. Probably the greatest mourning, some of the greatest mourning that comes in, in our physical being, but not to a sinful extreme and certainly not when it's bound up in our own sinfulness. Number three, the thing that this is not, it is not a mourning that is simply to soothe our own ego. You see, there can be times when a sorrow over sin is really just a grief that people will no longer perceive us the way that we desire and give us what we want. And we're sad that we now will no longer be seen by people as we want to be. And our sin then is simply, or our grief over it is just an agony over our ego being poked. This would be a lot like Saul. You remember Saul, King Saul in the Bible? When he sins, he doesn't, he was supposed to go and destroy all of the Amalekites and he brings back the sheep and the oxen and the king. Remember Samuel comes and says, have you done what the Lord commanded in destroying the Amalekites? I have done what the Lord commanded. Then why do I hear sheep? What's this bleeding of sheep that I hear in my ears? Oh, you mean that? I did that to please the Lord. I disobeyed God to please him. I saved money by spending more at the sale. Anyway, it's not the same thing. It's not, sorry, that's not the same. You cannot please God by disobeying him. And then he says an interesting thing in 1 Samuel 15, 30. Samuel says, to obey is better than sacrifice. You don't come back to sacrifice. Not the sacrifice was, was wrong. They were supposed to do that. But it was the wrong kind of sacrifice with sheep that weren't supposed to even be alive. It's not a good sacrifice. Anyway, his obedience was, supposed, was what he was supposed to do. So Saul says this. He says, I've sinned. Right? And we see in Saul through the rest of his life a, an external sorrow. Really, actually, an, an internal sorrow reflected by, really reflected in the evil spirit sent from the Lord that causes these fits of rage and depression. So Saul's got lots of sorrow over sin, but none of it because of the fact that it grieves God. And he reveals it in this verse, 1 Samuel 15, 30. He says, I've sinned, but please honor me now before the elders of the people and before Israel and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Now I, now I don't look good in the eyes of the people. Now I think the kingdom, as, as we find, has been removed from me and God's going to set someone else out and I don't want that. I want the kingship. I want the attention. We're not talking about that kind of mourning. That's sinful mourning. Even when it relates to our own sinfulness, a false repentance. So what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about number four here, mourning, a true mourning over our personal sin. It starts there. Where we recognize the evilness of the sin that we have committed. Where we recognize it is the violation of the character and nature ultimately of God. And it causes us great anguish, a true anguish. Not related to our ego, not tied up with our idols, but born directly out of our love for a holy God. That's the nature of true mourning over sin. And it involves several things. Turn to Psalm 32, one of the, one of the most important texts when it comes to understanding grief over sin or what, what it looks like. Psalm 32, we, we will see that grief is such that, the true grief over sin is such that it, it can and, and really is weighty enough to involve a physical anguish. Not just a quick emotional, you know, pang, oh, I feel bad about that. But really, one, certainly if not dealt with, it can become such and really is weighty enough, should become such that our grief consumes us. It is, it is a, again, not in, in one sense an inappropriate way, but it sh- because it is so weighty for David, it, it actually worked its way out in his very body. He recognized the weightiness of it. And in Psalm 32, he says this, 
How blessed, beginning in verse 1, is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That sounds a lot like the Beatitudes, doesn't it? How blessed. How blessed, verse 2, is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose spirit there's no deceit. Those are great verses, but they flow from verse 3. He starts with where he has gotten to after the attitude of verses 3 and following. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. When he didn't deal with it, his sin was so weighty to him that it literally was affecting his entire body. Does sin mean that much to you? Now, David should have dealt with it sooner. Right? We're not saying that you wait until such time as your body's consumed. That's not the point. The point is that sin is that serious to you. David, David demonstrates himself to be a real believer and that he can't just keep sin inside, not dealing with it, and that it has no impact. It boggles my mind when people are, are, are living in, in heinous sins, what we might consider the, you know, the more obvious sins of adultery and other things. They do this for years, and it doesn't bother them at all. And then they say, I'm a believer. I was in two churches when I was younger, when, when my parents were going to church, where there were pastors in those churches who had been involved in affairs with their secretaries for multiple years and literally were, were completely, at least certainly even in their own statements and generally in their life, seemed completely unbothered by it and only turned over or only got out of the pastor because they were exposed, not because they came forward and said, this has been killing me, I can't take it. And both of them all the way out the door saying, we're believers, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Where's the grief over sin? Where's the weightiness over sin, literally consuming us because we haven't forgiven it. That's a true grief over sin. It involves physical anguish, certainly emotional distress that's bound up with that. And maybe that's first. I mean, that's what he describes here. Literally, his vitality is sucked away. So what's going on inside of his heart when he doesn't confess his sin is that the weightiness of it is crushing him. Psalm 51.3, another primary text on what it means to repent and to grieve over sin. We'll look at it in more detail in a moment. David says, for I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. I'm constantly thinking about it. There's an emotional, and really I would say an affectional disconnect. Why? Because for the true believer, they love God, right? And that love of God is harmed and hindered by that sin. And so there's this dissonance within them of wanting to love God and yet holding on to the pleasures of sin and it's killing them. You see, there's no dissonance like that in the unbeliever. The only, the only emotional dissonance, affectional dissonance, is they're probably not getting the same pleasures from sin that they got before. Or they get thrown in jail so they can't have those pleasures. That's not this, that's not this true affectional anguish where because I love God, my sin is killing me inside because I know that it, it is, it's harming my relationship with Him and it's violating His character and nature. Where's that view of sin? Now, this is not, you know, hammer the congregation day. Every believer, every one of you sitting out here that's a true believer, when I just said that, you said, you know what? I have that. I have that. I hate sin at some level. So let me encourage you with that. I'm not saying, I'm not looking at you, you guys don't have any of this. Where is it? I'm only saying this is the nature of those who are actually in the kingdom and it's something to actually be cultivated, something we need more of because as we have less of it, we sin more and we refuse to deal with our sin. So I believe you have this if you're a believer. But if you're sitting here going, physical anguish and emotional distress that come because I'm not in right relationship to God and because my affection and my love towards God is hindered in a relational way because this sin is bothering it, that's not my problem. I just hate the consequences. I just hate that my life is a bummer because of this sin. Excuse the Californiaism. 
Thank you for joining us again on Grace Maryville Weekly. These messages are just a small collection of sermons that have been presented at Grace Community Church in downtown Maryville, Tennessee. If you would like to learn more about Grace Community Church, where Pastor Chris serves as an elder and pastor, please visit us online at gracemaryville.org. Again, that is gracemaryville.org. There, not only will you be able to find out more about the many ministries at Grace, but you will also be able to access a full audio archive of messages not only presented by Pastor Chris, but also messages presented to our women's ministry, youth ministry, and college-aged ministries, as well as the SOLA and Essentials Conferences hosted at Grace. We invite you to visit us online, and we hope that you will join us again next time as Pastor Chris continues to exegetically work through the book of Matthew. Until then, remember that Jesus is the King, and the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ.